0: Take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Acts, chapter 8. Acts, chapter 8. Well, I like to call chapters 6 through 8 in Acts the rise of the deacons. Because it is in these chapters that the ministry of the very first deacons in the early church comes to the forefront which is really important because it reinforces the fact that the spreading of the gospel, the preaching of the good news is not just restricted to some small, tiny group of professionals. It's not restricted to apostles. It's not restricted to pastors. The command of Jesus in Matthew 28 to go into the world and to make disciples of all nations, that command is for everyone. Sinclair Ferguson once said, being the church is doing evangelism. Another teacher described worship as a form of cultural conquest. I like that, because Acts is about the beginnings of a global takeover. In Acts 1.8, Jesus said, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Ju- in Judea and then Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so this conquest is not a conquest through physical weapons, but through the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. As the gospel spreads and people hear about Jesus Christ, hearts are conquered, sins are forgiven, and lives are utterly transformed as they become citizens of a new kingdom in submission to a new king, King Jesus. And every Christian is to be committed to playing a role in this global conquest. Your mission is to spread the good news about Jesus wherever you may find yourself, Whenever there's an opportunity to open your mouth with whomever God may bring across your path, and we're going to see a great example of this in Philip in our text today, and more importantly, we're going to learn something about uh, the heart of God who has commissioned us to preach his word to the nations. So uh, I hope you're there now in Acts 8. Please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the precious and perfect words of our great and glorious God. This is Acts chapter 8. And we're going to pick up where we left off last week and start at verse 26 and read on down through the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And Philip opened his mouth found himself at Azotus, and, he, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let's pray. Father, what an incredible gift and blessing your word is. Forgive us for taking it for granted. Father, this word is a powerful word. It's a supernatural word, and Father, I pray that you would speak to us through this word this morning. And that you would feed our hungry souls with it. That you would help us to love your word, believe your word, enjoy it, and apply it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, just like Jesus promised, the gospel first began in Jerusalem and in Judea. And last week, in the first half of Acts 8, we saw phase two of Jesus' plan unfold as the gospel penetrated into Samaria. Samaria. And Philip spearheaded that uh, ministry to, to great effect. Through his gospel preaching, <clears throat> thousands of Samaritans are believing in Jesus. And so the global conquest continues. But in the midst of all this excitement and all this joy, God already has his eye beyond Samaria, eyeing new territory and new people to be claimed by his benevolent takeover. And in this final section of Acts 8, I want us to consider four things. First of all, I want us to consider the God who seeks. The God who seeks. You know, the most important agent in this story is not Philip, and it's not the Ethiopian. It's God. In verse 26, the story begins with God giving Philip an unusual command to go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, Gaza is a remote place. It's the last stop in Palestine before you push further south into the desert and and you go into Africa. Luke says he's in a desert place. And from a human perspective, this doesn't make sense. Strategically speaking, you'd want to be where the action is, right? Ministry-wise, you'd want to be where the majority of people are. You got an explosion of activity in Samaria. You have so many needs. You have receptive crowds. Surely more of an impact can be made there. And yet, God sends Philip away from all of that hustle and bustle to a faraway, distant place. Why? Because God has his eye on one particular man to save. That's a good reminder that, yes, God is about the business of saving a special people set apart for himself, God is building a church. He's building a community. He's building a family. But let's never forget that that family, that people, is made up of specific individual persons. Uh, People that God knows personally. And people that God has had his eye on specifically for salvation. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, the Apostle Paul, or John, excuse me, writes about the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Or, to put it another way, Jesus' book. (laughs) And John says that in this ancient book of life, names were written in it from the foundation of the world. We might not know this Ethiopian's name, but God knew his name, and it was in his book all along. And from the foundation of the world, God was thinking about that specific man to save. It's amazing when you think about it. That's why God sends Philip into the desert, to reach this one man. And this story underscores the humbling truth that salvation starts with God. Salvation starts with God. We tend to think of our salvation experience as the climax of our seeking God. And from the human perspective, there is some truth to this, right? You you can't become a Christian without seeking and reaching out to God. And indeed, we'll see that this Ethiopian story is defined by someone who's actively seeking and searching. On the other hand, The scriptures say that man in his natural condition is hostile and hard-hearted towards God and, and, and no one left to his own will seeks God. Now, we're all seeking something for sure. Everyone is searching for meaning in the universe, but because man's sinful heart has a revulsion for the one true God and doesn't submit to him, The heart of man bends our seeking away from God in an attempt to meet our deepest needs and other things apart from Him. That's what the Apostle Paul is getting at in Romans 3 when he said that no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside. So if on the one hand, no one naturally seeks God, and yet if on the other hand, the sinner must actually reach out to God for salvation, then how in the world is anyone saved? The answer is, not naturally, but supernaturally. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You think about that. So deep is the, is the corruption of man's nature through sin that he cannot on his own come to Christ. And therefore, if he does come, Jesus says it's because there is a mysterious, supernatural drawing work that happens in the heart of a sinner that draws him to God, that, that stirs him up to desire and seek God out. If you're here this morning as a Christian, that is exactly what happened to you. Which means that in the final analysis, the only reason you ever sought God at all and received him and embraced him as your own It's because he, in love, took the initiative and sought you first to make you his own. I love the song we sing sometimes here at Harbin's that beautifully expresses that truth. My Lord, I did not choose you, for that could never be. My heart would still refuse you had you not chosen me. What a beautiful thing that God chooses undeserving sinners He seeks them out to save them. And that song, those lyrics of that song, that should be the anthem cry of thanksgiving for every believer in this room. How wonderful a thing it is that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Well, we see here the God who seeks, but we also meet in this section, the Ethiopian who searches. The Ethiopian who searches. All men are on a quest for something outside of themselves. That's true. And when God deems to save someone, he graciously and lovingly bends that seeking, that searching in exactly the right direction. And that's what happens, that's what's happening to this man that we meet in verse 27. Now, I have a special place in my heart for Ethiopians because my son Elijah is Ethiopian. Ethiopia was the ancient kingdom of Cush. You might hear me in this message uh, use Cush and Ethiopia interchangeably. Uh, Cush, that ancient kingdom, was much larger and more powerful than modern-day Ethiopia. Uh, It included large sections of northern Africa. And in the Greco-Roman world, it was considered to be a remote place. Indeed, it was regarded to be as the ends of the earth. Now, this man was a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Candace is not a personal name. It's a royal title, much like Caesar or Pharaoh. And verse 27 says this man worked directly for Candace. He was in charge of the treasury. He was a powerful man. He was an important man. And he was also a eunuch. Now, if you don't know what that is, uh, that simply means that he had certain body parts removed that make it impossible for him to ever father children. That's about as delicately as I can put that. And it was not uncommon for eunuchs to have special positions in the royal household as they could be trusted with the women. Now, Luke is a meticulous writer, y'all. Everything he tells us is for a purpose. No detail is wasted. He didn't have to tell us that. And, and Luke, under the Spirit's inspiration, deems it significant for us to know, first, this man's race. He is an Ethiopian black man. And also, he is a eunuch. And here's the other fascinating thing we learn about him. End of verse 27. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot. That's amazing. That's a significant trip. We take it for granted today. We can hop in our car and in 20, 30, 40 minutes maybe, be at church for worship. Would have taken months for this journey from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. There was evidently something happening in this man's heart, a longing, a restlessness, a desire to know God. The paganism and native religions of Ethiopia obviously weren't doing it for him. They weren't meeting the needs of his soul. They weren't answering the questions he had about life and the universe. And at some point, he had heard about the God of Israel, maybe from Jews that were present in Ethiopia, or maybe from Egypt, which was nearby where there was a great Jewish rabbinical library in the city of Alexandria. Maybe he even went to that library looking for answers. Could it be that in his searching he had come across at one point Psalm sixty-eight thirty-one that says, "'Nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God.'" Here the psalmist foresees a time where formerly pagan people outside of Israel would stretch out their hands to God and worship. I wonder if he knew about that verse. I wonder if, if that encouraged his heart that, that even though he wasn't a Jew, he too might be accepted by the God of Israel and find the answers that he had been looking for. I'd love to know more about this man's Search could probably make a good movie. May have went on for years. But we, we don't meet this man till near the end of his search. He had just completed his trip to Jerusalem to stretch out his hands to God, as Psalm 68 says. And when he got to Jerusalem, he probably attended a, a local synagogue, uh, for starters, maybe even the synagogue of the freedmen that we read about back in chapter six. But based on everything that we learned about that synagogue, he would not have learned much there. Nothing useful. But the place he would have really wanted to visit, the place that would have been the climax of his pilgrimage would have been the temple. But a visit to the temple would have been problematic for two reasons. First, he was a Gentile. And Gentiles were only allowed on the temple outskirts. The outer court of the Gentiles, it was called. It was the place where non-Jews could come to pray. But it really wasn't the most worshipful place. It was filled with merchants who sold animals for worshipers to bring before God as a sacrifice. It was loud and hectic with lots of hustle and bustle. And, and there was a propensity for greed and corruption among the money changers. You remember that story where Jesus one time and his anger drove the greedy money changers out of the temple to break up their money-making scheme. But even if the Ethiopian wanted to purchase an animal for sacrifice to God, he couldn't because there was that boundary. He was stuck in the outer court. And there was a a wall that separated the outer court of the Gentiles from the inner courts of the temple where the Jews could go and worship and sacrifice. The Jews could go in, they could go past that wall. But that wall contained an, an inscription in various languages warning Gentiles that they risk death. Should they try to go deeper into the temple? And so a Gentile was unable to fully participate in the worship of God. Unable to to worship side by side with Jews. A Gentile was someone who was on the outside looking in. And adding to all this was a a deep-seated prejudice and animosity that many Jews had for Gentiles. Uh, This exotic-looking foreigner probably got some strange looks. The Jews should have been delighted for Gentiles to be drawn to the temple, but honestly, many of them felt contempt for Gentiles. So being a Gentile was the first strike against this Ethiopian seeker, but strike two was that he was a eunuch. Deuteronomy 21.3 says that no eunuch could enter into the assembly of the Lord. In the Old Testament law, you're going to find A heightened concern regarding restrictions on ceremonial worship and physical deformities and imperfections. Not because God is mean, and not because it is sinful in and of itself to have certain physical defects. Uh, This instead is all symbolism that was meant to teach Israel important truths. And marred bodies were a demonstration of a fallen world, a symbol of sin and corruption. And God being holy demands perfection. And bodies that were not whole were living illustrations meant to point to man's lack of wholeness inwardly, Uh, that the inner man of all people is deeply broken and marred, and, and for anyone to be saved, they needed to be made whole inwardly to be made right with God and to come into his presence. And so this Ethiopian was twice excluded from fully worshiping God in the Old Covenant way. At best, as far as he could go, was the court of the Gentiles. But because he was a eunuch, he may very well not have gotten that far, because no eunuch may enter the assembly of the Lord. This man really was on the outside looking in. He could see the the massive, beautiful, glorious temple structure. He could be in awe of it, he could admire it, he could stand outside of it and pray. But as he watched people going in and out and in and out of the temple, it must have been a huge letdown to this man who's searching for answers that he couldn't fully participate. And so his pilgrimage to the temple did nothing for him in the end. Now, this man is illustrative of the fact that we may seek and search all we want. We may try to be moral. We may try to be religious. We may go on great pilgrimages. We may do all sorts of things. But if the thing we're doing is devoid of Christ, we'll always be disappointed in the end, we'll always be let down in the end because our chief problem is not our religiousness or lack thereof, our chief problem is our sin that alienates us from God. Now, the good news is that this man isn't totally off track. He senses that there's something about this God of Israel that he needs and and that the answers to his questions are somehow connected to him. But he doesn't know how to connect the dots. He doesn't know how to connect with God. And so his visit to the temple was surely anticlimactic. But nevertheless, he hadn't given up his search. Indeed, uh, it seems his heart is is, is more stirred up, all the more to know the truth. And and, and so as he leaves Jerusalem and and the temple behind, we find him reading a Bible. We don't know where he got a copy of Isaiah's scroll. You know, today we take our Bibles for granted. We got so many of them, we don't even know how many we have. Half of them, if not more, just sitting around collecting dust, unused. But I can tell you that having your own copy of the scriptures back then was considered a marvelous and precious thing, and an expensive thing. That scroll of Isaiah would have cost some money, but obviously this eunuch is a man of means. Perhaps he purchased the scroll during his visit to Jerusalem. Maybe he was browsing the local synagogue bookstore one day, the Jewish version of Lifeway Books. He's in there looking around, and maybe he came across the the book of Isaiah and he purchased it. Maybe it was the only scripture available. Or maybe someone told him, you know, Isaiah is the perfect book for a Gentile like you to read and learn more about God. You should get that one. It's a good book. We don't know all the details, But we see God's sovereign hand of providence working to reach this man because from eternity past, God was moved with compassion to save him and to give him rest from his endless searching. And so here he is in his chariot. Don't think, by the way, Ben-Hur chariot. If you've ever seen the movie Ben-Hur. He's not like, you know, racing through the desert uh, in this thing. It's more like an ox cart and moving pretty slow. It's one of the reasons why it took so long, this journey from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. He's in his chariot, he's got the scroll, and if, he's, if he starts reading the scroll from the very beginning, which I would presume you would, that's where you begin reading a book usually, um, it wouldn't be long until he came to Isaiah chapter 11, where he would have come across there something that would have been a special interest to him. Isaiah 11.10 says, In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire and in his resting place, shall be glorious. That would have gotten his attention. Uh, That the nations, the Gentiles, would inquire of one called the root of Jesse. and He would stand as a signal for the peoples. That that word signal means a a banner, a flag, or maybe in more modern day terms, a beacon of hope, high and lifted up, drawing people into a glorious resting place. And is that not what this Ethiopian man is longing for? for rest, rest at last. And then it says in the very next verse, in that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Patros, from Cush. God is a remnant of people reserved for himself even out out of the way to the ends of the earth, Ethiopia. Surely a verse like that would cause this man's heart to swell with even more inquisitiveness and hope. Yes, he was excluded from the temple, and, and yet there is one called the root of Jesse, this signal for the peoples who will gather those to himself, even those from Ethiopia. And then, if he kept reading, he would come to Isaiah chapter 18, which is all about Ethiopia. And it looks forward to a day where tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth. Now, now that's a compliment, by the way, being, being tall and, and smooth. The, uh, the ancient historian Herodotus uh, said that the, the Ethiopians were uh, among the most strikingly handsome people in the whole world. And, and my son says amen to that. Uh, but, but, but tall and smooth and known to be fierce warriors as well. And Isaiah says, These people, tall and smooth, from a people feared near and far, mighty nation, and conquering, they come bringing tribute to Mount Zion, the place of the name of the Lord of hosts. So here, Isaiah foresees a time where Ethiopians are coming to worship God. And yet, this man did come. He came to Jerusalem, and he was denied full access to God unable to worship in the fullest sense unable to bring an offering but then as he keeps reading he comes across the most perplexing text of all and is at this point in the story where we meet the evangelist who speaks the evangelist who speaks after the excitement and explosive missionary impact in samaria philip must have thought that his latest ministry assignment from the lord was very strange and yet philip doesn't question god he simply does as he is told. Never question the wisdom of God when he reassigns you. I am learning that in my own life and ministry. Never question it. Philip obeys, and eventually he encounters what probably would have been an entourage of, of tall, exotic looking, powerful, dark skinned guards surrounding a slow moving chariot. And in verse 29, the Spirit says to Philip, go over and join the chariot. And Philip runs and he hears him reading Isaiah the prophet. And Philip recognizes the scripture. And he asks him, do you you understand what you're reading? Now, once again, we see the sovereignty of God in salvation. Not just sovereignty, not just God's sovereignty in choosing and drawing the sinner to himself, but sovereignty in all of the details, big and small, that lead to someone's conversion. If you if if, you're a, if you were a naturalist, <clears throat> you could say that the Ethiopian just happened have been searching for answers. And Philip just happened to cross this ma- man's path at the right time. And the Ethiopian just happened to have the book of Isaiah that he just happened to have been reading out loud. And Philip just happened to hear that. And, and, and the man just happened to be in Isaiah 53, which just happens to be one of the very best chapters in the book of Isaiah if you want to explain the gospel. it's a lot of happenstance. It's a lot of coincidences if you're a naturalist. But we know none of this is coincidence. God has had this man's name in his book from the foundation of the world. God is orchestrating the timing of all of this and arranging this divine appointment between these two men. Nothing happens by chance. That's true in your own life as well. There are probably some of you here in this room. You can remember your own conversion and you can trace back A series of events, people, situations, conversations, and circumstances that were pieces in the puzzle or links in the chain that eventually led you to finally becoming a Christian. God in His providence orchestrated the timing of all those things to, to bring you to Christ. It was not a coincidence that as a, I don't know, 14, 15-year-old teenager, I just happened to turn on the radio and just happened to hear John MacArthur preaching the Bible and just happened to have an increasing interest in the things of God. And over the next, I don't know, several years, there was a number of other things that just happened to happen as God was leading me and drawing me to Him. God continues to work this way in your life on the other side of your salvation for the sake of giving the gospel to others so that they too might be saved. Everyone you encounter, everyone who crosses your path, every conversation you find yourself in, I don't care if it's your boss or your neighbor, family member, waitress, cashier at the checkout counter, God has put you there in that moment to serve that person and represent Christ. And just like Philip had to be ready at any time to share the gospel with anyone, so you and I must be ready as well. The Apostle Peter says that we should always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And Philip is prepared. He hears the book of Isaiah being read and he immediately asks, Do you understand what you're reading? And a prideful person would have been like, Of course. Now, the Ethiopian is reading Isaiah 53, which is all about a man who was despised and rejected and treated as an outcast, bearing all of the griefs and sorrows for his people. And then by the time Philip catches up to him, he's reading verses 7 and 8, which speak of this man as one led to the slaughter like a lamb, dying for the sins of his people. The Ethiopian is perplexed. He has no idea what this is all about. And so he humbly answers, How how can I understand this without someone to guide me? Without someone to teach me? And he invites Philip to come up and sit with him. Would have been an interesting pair, this big, tall, smooth, handsome Ethiopian guy and this little small Jewish guy. I don't know if he was small. I'm just I'm making the movie in my head, sorry. I just I do that a lot when I'm reading. I call it sanctified imagination. It's okay to have a little sanctified imagination when you're reading the Bible. But here they are. Now, one of the important lessons, another important lesson we learn in this passage is that yes, God is saves and God is sovereign in salvation, but God uses human instruments as a means to save people. He uses the people of God speaking the word of God to the lost. And here, Philip is God's chosen means to share the the good news with this man. Friends, you can't read the book of Acts and walk away as a hyper-Calvinist. You know what a hyper-Calvinist is, right? It's someone who rightly believes in God's sovereignty and salvation, but wrongly applies it. The great missionary hero, William Carey, encountered hyper-Calvinism in the late 1700s, where, as he argued for the urgency of foreign missions, he was interrupted by an older uh, minister who said, young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without consulting you or me. What a stuffed shirt. I don't know how William Carey responded to that criticism, but I would say that God doesn't consult, he commands. And he commanded that all believers go into the world and preach the gospel. Paul in Romans 10 says that if one is to be saved, he must hear the message, and if one is to hear, there must be a preacher. It's not rocket science, because Paul says saving faith or belief comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. And the implication there is that somebody's got to share that word. How about you? Luke says in verse 35, Philip opened his mouth. You see, you've got to speak, y'all. You've got to say something. You've got to say something about Jesus or you're not evangelizing. Just being a nice person is not evangelizing. Just being a good neighbor is not evangelizing. Mormons are nice people and good neighbors. And so are moral atheists. In Philip, we have a wonderful model of evangelism. It says, Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So, evangelism is announcing something very specific from God's word about the redemptive work of Jesus. You see, even just talking about the Bible isn't sufficient. Debating creation versus evolution is not evangelism. To evangelize, you must do what Philip did and what Charles Spurgeon once said. He said that from wherever scripture you're at, you've got to make a beeline to the cross. A beeline to what Jesus has done. I'm not saying that debating evolution versus creation is not important or helpful at times. I'm not saying that. But we just can't reduce evangelism to just raw intellectual apologetics if you never get around to the gospel you're not evangelizing well philip here is making a beeline to the cross philip and the ethiopian are talking about scripture they're talking about isaiah 53 and he's connecting it to christ not a hard thing to do compared to some passages in the bible god teed it up real nice for philip on this one isaiah 53 Likely, they talked about many other scriptures, because Luke says that beginning with this scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. We don't know all the details of their conversation, but certainly Philip told him everything he needed to know to be saved. He would have told him something to the effect that God created humanity as good, as unmarred, without a single blemish or imperfection. And therefore, man originally could have access to and enjoy God's presence but when sin came into the world, it corrupted humanity. We're all born sinners, and because, we, because of sin, we live in a world filled with people that are not physically whole, sure, but everyone is, is, is dreadfully broken spiritually. Our natural condition is rebellion against God, trading in the goodness of God, and seeking to find joy and satisfaction in lesser things. And God is a God of justice and a God of judgment. He must punish sin. He's perfect. And imperfection must be cast into hell, eternally alienated and separated from the enjoyment of God's presence. And did not our Ethiopian friend catch a glimpse, a foreshadowing of this doom as he stood disappointed and rejected outside the temple, separated and shut out on the outside looking in due to his marred body, due to his imperfections? But the punchline is that we all deserve this. Eunuch, non eunuch, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Isaiah 53 6 says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. Surely Philip spoke of these sorts of things. You can't share the good news with a sinner until they first understand the bad news. But the bad news must give way to the good news. And so Philip would have explained to him what Isaiah 53 was all about. The one who bore our griefs and sorrows, the one who was despised and rejected by men, treated as an outcast. He had the sins of his people laid on him. And then as a substitute, he was struck down by God on behalf of sinners. And this one who ends up experiencing everything that you and I deserve, this one is God himself. We don't know exactly what Philip said, but it was probably something to this effect. My Ethiopian friend, the God that you have been searching for all this time, Yahweh himself, came down as a man in the person of Jesus to search for sinners just like you. He came to seek and save the lost, and, and all of those lambs that you saw being taken into that temple in Jerusalem, don't be too disappointed that you weren't allowed to do that because they ultimately can't help you. Indeed, there is no religious work. There is no deed you can do to erase the stain of sin from your soul, to deal with your marred, blemished, imperfect heart. And your sin is the ultimate barrier that stands between you and God. And those bulls and goats and lambs and, and even that temple were pointing us to Jesus. You don't need to go to a physical building to sacrifice lambs. Jesus is the true temple and the true Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And if you repent of your sins and believe in Him, you'll be forgiven and cleansed and made whole at long last. Everything that you've wanted and everything that you've searched for and longed for is bound up in Christ. He's the answer to the most important questions that you've ever had. In Isaiah 55, which is just a little bit past where the Ethiopian was reading, there's a beautiful invitation from God where the Lord says, Come. For a long time, this Ethiopian man had been thirsty. He had been hungry. He was like a, a hungry man spending money on that which is not bread and laboring for that which does not satisfy. Just another chapter later in Isaiah 56, we find a word of hope for the Gentile. Isaiah 56:3 Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. In other words... The Gentile who truly desires and loves the Lord doesn't need to fear being separated from God's people. He becomes God's people. Race doesn't matter. Culture doesn't matter. Skin color doesn't matter. There's a beautiful Psalm. It's Psalm eighty-seven that again mentions Ethiopia. Some of you didn't realize Ethiopia was so prominent in the Bible. It's all over the place. Bibles crawling with Ethiopians. In Psalm 87, God says that among those who know me, I mention Rahab. Rahab is Egypt, another name for Egypt. Among those who know me, I mention Egypt and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one was born in her, for the Most High Himself will establish her. Now, that's wonderful. It's saying all of these Gentile groups, including Cush, shall be regarded as citizens of God's kingdom. Their passports, as it were, are stamped Zion or Israel. This eunuch, through faith in Jesus, can be counted as a natural citizen of Israel. This one was born there. Paul in Ephesians 2, speaking to Gentile Christians, says you were alienated. From the commonwealth of Israel. But now, now in Christ Jesus, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul says, he goes on to say that Christ's sacrifice has taken the, the the Jew and taken the Gentile and has merged him together and has made them into one people, breaking down that dividing wall of hostility between them. Paul may well have been thinking about that physical wall in the temple uh, separating Jews from Gentiles, but he was most certainly thinking about the entire Old Testament Mosaic economy. All of those things that separated Jew from Gentile were being torn down. Physical circumcision, the the dietary food laws... We'll see that in Acts 10, by the way, about the dietary food laws. All of those things were temporary placeholders. They were types and shadows pointing to something better in Christ. And in the gospel, Paul goes on to say, Jew and Gentile are both reconciled to God, and so consequently, they're both reconciled to one another. The Jerusalem temple is obsolete. It's outlived its purpose. Its days are numbered. God soon is going to let it be destroyed. But the new temple of God is the church of God with Jesus Christ as its cornerstone. Who cares if you can't go into the old temple when you can trust in Christ and actually be a part of the new and better temple with full access to God through the sacrifice of the perfect lamb, Jesus Christ. The old way of doing things is passing away. Something superior is emerging in its place. And Isaiah 56 is a promise to the Ethiopian that he can always be a part of the people of God and never, never fear separation. But perhaps an even greater concern for this man was not his race, but the fact that he was a eunuch. In the ancient world, unlike common sentiment today, children were seen as a huge blessing and not a burden. Huge blessing not a burden. I know y'all here at Harman's Church, you see children as a blessing. But a lot of people today don't. Back then, they did, and, and, and probably even more than, than we can even um, uh, relate to today. To have offspring back then meant to have, uh, have hope for the future. Having no offspring meant having no future. It meant your name and your lineage and everything about you was cut off. And here's the wonderful thing. Not only does Isaiah 56 have a word of hope for the Gentile, but man, it even has a word of hope for the eunuch. Isaiah goes on to write in Isaiah 56, And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who choose the things that please me and hold fast, to my, fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off." What a word of encouragement. Yes, sons and daughters are wonderful, but if you can't have sons and daughters, it's okay, because you're going to have something infinitely better. An everlasting name, an everlasting hope and future in God. Out of all the Old Testament scrolls that he could have had, I can't think of one better than Isaiah for this Ethiopian man. It's full of stuff for him, isn't it? It provides the key that unlocks the answers to his biggest questions and needs, and that key is Christ, the root of Jesse, the banner for the nations, the man of sorrows, the Lamb of God. And so here now, we see so far the God who seeks, the Ethiopian who searches, the evangelist who speaks. And then my final thought, and this is a short one, the joy of the saved the joy of the saved. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, and because Philip has been sharing with him this word, suddenly all the light bulbs begin to go off. They they, they begin to explode in the mind of the eunuch. He finally understands. He finally gets it. And faith swells in his heart. And so there's only one thing left to do. And somewhere in this conversation, Philip must have explained that baptism is a visible demonstration of faith in Jesus and repentance and becoming a new creation in Christ. Because in verse 36, the eunuch says, see, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water. This is a proof text for baptism by immersion. (laughs) It's a lot of water there. They went down into it. Philip and the eunuch... They went down, and he baptized him. And when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until they came to Caesarea. So long before Star Trek ever thought of it, Philip is beamed out of the desert and placed in Azotus. There he is. The Spirit carried him away. Why? because the evangelist work is never done. There's always more people, more souls in need, more hungry and searching people that need to know about, uh, about the God who's the answer to all their questions and the satisfier of all their deepest needs. And I love it that the eunuch is not bothered at all that, that Philip is gone. <laughs> Verse 39 says, he went on his way rejoicing. I mean, he had a great companion in Philip, this little Jewish guy, but he had a better companion in God. David writes in Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life and in your presence there is fullness of joy. Jesus says in John 10, I've come that they may have life and have it in the full. Jesus in John 15 says to his disciples, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus didn't come just to get you out of hell. He came so that you might experience the fullness of joy that comes from knowing God. And this Ethiopian man has that joy. His sins have been taken away. He's accepted by God. He has direct access to God through Christ. He's now part of God's people. He's done spending his money for that which is not bread. He's done laboring for that which is not satisfied. He will delight himself in God. The great search of his life has finally ended, but his greatest adventure, friendship with the God of joy, has just begun, and it will never end. One of the early church fathers, Irenaeus, said that this eunuch returned rejoicing to Ethiopia And became a very effective evangelist and missionary to his own people. And we actually know that the Coptic church has has deep roots that go back to the earliest days in church history. And so we see the beginnings of the gospel going to the ends of the earth. And North Africa becomes a very important center of strength for Christianity. From North Africa come such leaders like Tertullian in the 2nd century. And Cyprian in the 3rd century. And Augustine in the 4th century. But it all started with this guy. This Ethiopian eunuch and with a Jewish man who is obedient to God, crossing cultural and racial barriers to share the love of Jesus. If you're here as a believer, don't expect to hear from an angel or an audible voice to tell you what to do. (laughs) That's what happened to Philip. Those are unusual, non-normative experiences. Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you that you already have a word from God, telling you to go into the world and make disciples, to preach the word in season and out of season, to do the work of an evangelist, and to always be ready to give an answer for those who ask about the hope that is in you. What is normative in Philip is that we see a man who is constantly on mission, always eager, always looking to speak the word of Christ with whomever, whenever, wherever. That is to be the normal Christian life. And everyone that God puts in your path this week, considered a divine appointment. May you represent Jesus and the gospel well in those moments for their good and his glory. If you're here as an unbeliever, there's a famous quote from Augustine that really reflects the Ethiopian man's experience. He said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. That quote also reflects you, whether you know it or not. Friend, You being here today, and you hearing this message today, and hearing this gospel from me, guess what? It's a divine appointment. It is. God has sent me into your life today to plead with you, to to plead with you to not waste your life in lesser things. They'll only fail you in the end, they'll only let you down, they'll only leave you in disappointment. So repent of your sins. Believe in Jesus. Follow him and find forgiveness of sins, peace for your soul and a glorious resting place. I urge you to believe, be baptized, and go on your way rejoicing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy and precious word, and I pray that you would apply it to our hearts. May I ask these things,